Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery after a holiday hiatus. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. In this episode, we'll cover a surgeon that had his biggest impact in the field of anesthesiology. He invented both the spinal block and the beer block, and no, that isn't named for the alcoholic beverage made from fermented cereal grains, but rather the late 19th and early 20th century German surgeon August Beer. We'll talk about his innovations, a bit about some of his eccentricities, and of course, much more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. August Carl Gustav Beer was born on November 24, 1861, in Helsen, in the dukedom of Waldock, Germany. His father, Theodore Beer, was a surveyor geometrician who developed young August's interest in science and nature, which would later play a major role in his life, as we'll see. As a student, August was uncertain whether to study zoology, botany, general biology, or medicine, but eventually chose the latter, starting medical school at the University of Berlin in 1881. He later transferred to the University of Leipzig, attending from 1882 to 1883, and finally completed his medical school training in Kiel. That final move was, quote, not for the sake of science, but the sea and marine life, end quote. Following graduation, Beer started out as a general practitioner in the small village of Gotorf, near Kiel, population 1500, often visiting patients on a horse. But during this brief period, he volunteered for the Navy and traveled as a ship surgeon to South America twice, which he liked so much that he considered moving there. But instead, Beer became a surgical resident under the famous doctor Friedrich von Eschmark, whom he'd studied under at Leipzig at the surgical clinic in Kiel. So let's take a minute to cover Johann Friedrich August von Eschmark. He founded the German Society of Surgeons and was a forward-thinking educator emphasizing the importance of postgraduate education and hospital administrator championing accurate patient information and consent for medical legal reasons. Now, von Esmark identified that a backward movement of the mandible, which is your lower jaw, and tongue, was a cause of airway obstruction in unconscious patients under this new drug, ether. And he came up with a way to open the airway by overextending the neck and pushing the mandible forward, known as the Esmark maneuver, a simple intervention used in resuscitation procedures to this day. However, it was his battlefield experience and interest in trauma care that he's most well known for. Given the history of Germany in the 19th century, von Esmark had a great deal of first-hand battlefield experience. In fact, he was once taken prisoner and held for nine weeks, eventually gaining his freedom through a prisoner exchange for a Danish doctor. Now, these experiences led to a number of surgical innovations. In 1851, von Esmark published, quote, on resection in gunshot injuries, end quote, stressing conservative management and reconstruction to avoid radical amputations. And perhaps it was the administrator in him that also made him push for a system to enable analysis of the most effective use of medical resources, something today that we would call triage, at the time an unprecedented concept. Now prior to this, decision to treat depended on military rank instead of severity of injury. Von Esmark also introduced mobile hospitals and hospital trains, which were the precursors to today's MASH hospitals, and based on his recommendation, from 1873 onwards, soldiers were required to carry first aid packets. Von Esmark popularized the importance of universal familiarity with first aid, writing a popular book called, quote, Early Aid in Injuries and Accidents, end quote, and founded the Samaritan Society to give training in first aid. And a quick side note here. If anyone is not sure where the Good Samaritan saying comes from, it's a parable told by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in the Bible. The basic story is that a traveler is stripped of his clothing, beaten, and left half dead at the side of the road. After being passed by a priest and a Levite who avoid him, 
A Samaritan, meaning a person from Samaria, stops to help. Essentially, the lesson is to help strangers. So now you know. Okay, back to von Esmark. What is probably the most relevant innovation to this episode, as we'll see, was his invention of a rubber bandage that still bears his name. Introduced in 1873, it was made of woven rubber and would be wrapped around the limb repeatedly from distal to proximal, meaning starting away and moving towards the trunk. The idea was to squeeze out the venous blood with the bandage and then cut off the arterial supply from allowing more blood back in with a tourniquet, and then performing surgery in a bloodless field. Here's the description in von Esmark's own translated words, quote, We wrap the legs tightly from the toes to above the knees with elastic bandages made from woven rubber, forcing the blood out of the vessels of the limb by an even compression. Then we apply rubber tubing tightly four or five times around the upper thigh, where the bandage stops, in such a manner that not one drop of blood can enter the parts below it. The patient, in the course of operation on the limb, has lost no more than a teaspoonful of blood, end quote. Now, in trauma, it was also used to limit blood loss from an injured limb, and it is still used in orthopedics to this day. His technique became popular amongst his colleagues, and by 1880, von Esmark was reminding his fellow surgeons to tie off blood vessels before allowing the tourniquet to be released, or patients would bleed out. Now, von Esmark was awarded a title of nobility from the Emperor William I, and on his coat of arms was emblazoned his family crest, a Samaritan cross, and a bloodless arm celebrating the medical accomplishment for which he will always be remembered. I'll put a picture on Twitter for you. Okay, back to beer. By 1888, he'd finished his surgical training, and after a period of private practice, became a professor at the University of Kiel in 1895, working at the Royal Surgical University Hospital. It took him only a year to become a senior lecturer, which he did with his thesis, quote, circular sutures on the intestine, end quote. Now, interestingly, the thesis opposed the technique used at the time, which involved penetrating all of the layers of the intestine with suture, which he argued would hinder healing, but preferred suturing through the seromuscular layer, or the outer layer only, avoiding the inner mucosal lining, a technique that is still used to this day. It was during his time in Kiel where he made the first of his two major innovations in regional anesthesia. And to understand this breakthrough, we have to briefly review the development of local anesthesia. At the time, surgery was typically performed either under ether or chloroform. The first local anesthetic, which happened to be cocaine, was first used by Carl Kohler as a topical anesthetic for the eye in 1884. The use of cocaine expanded in 1892 after Carl Ludwig Schleich, a German surgeon, used a diluted solution of cocaine to inject anesthesia locally. The problem with this method was that it couldn't be used for big surgeries as the volume of cocaine needed would be toxic. A solution came to beer, likely inspired by his close relationship with Heinrich Quink, head of internal medicine at Kiel, whom he'd known since 1891. Now, if the name Quink sounds familiar, it may be that you've heard of Quink's edema, an old name for angioedema, which is rapid swelling of the deep tissues under the skin and mucous membranes due to leaky blood vessels. And there's also Quink's pulse, which is alternating flushing and blanching, meaning turning red and, and then white, under the fingernails, one sign of aortic insufficiency. But it's his work on the physiology of cerebrospinal fluids that is relevant here. Now, Quink described the lumbar puncture, meaning to stick a needle into the lower back to enter the space around the spinal cord, for both diagnosing illnesses and treating them, such as hydrocephalus. Now, Beer had the idea to use this access to the spinal cord to introduce cocaine to freeze the nerves of the lower part of the body. On August 16 of 1898, in order to perform a surgery to extract a tumor, 
in one of the lower limbs of a young patient with tuberculosis, so the lungs would be an issue for inhaled anesthesia, Beer used a wide-caliber quink needle and injected approximately 3 millimeters of 0.5% cocaine into the subarachnoid space and obtained surprising results. Now, between August 16 and 24 of 1898, Beer performed the spinal block on five patients using 10 to 20 milligrams of cocaine for surgery for the lower limbs. This regional anesthesia enabled Beer to avoid general anesthesia in some patients, which in those days had a high risk of mortality. As well, ether could cause post-operative nausea and vomiting, which was bad for sutures, and could lead to dehiscence, meaning splitting open of surgical wounds. Now, back then, about half of patients vomited for hours, often resulting in ether pneumonia. Now, this being the 19th century, there were no research ethics boards, so experimenting on oneself was not frowned upon, as it would be today. On August 24th of 1898, Beer asked Hildebrandt, an assistant to von Esmark, to perform a spinal block on him to investigate personally the effects of the technique, and in particular the side effects, including headache, nausea, and vomiting. Now, it failed as Hildebrandt found the subarachnoid space but could not attach the syringe to the needle, causing loss of spinal fluid and cocaine. So Hildebrandt then volunteered to be the guinea pig, and Beer did a spinal block on him. Hildebrandt reported feeling heat, but not pain when a lit cigarette was placed against one of his legs, felt no pain when pubic hairs were pulled, or when his testicles were, quote, strongly pressed, end quote, or even when Beer hit him in the shin with an iron hammer. Only after 45 minutes did Hildebrand's sensory blocks start to fade away. The two celebrated together that night at 7.30 with dinner, wine, and cigarettes. Later that night, Beer developed severe headache and dizziness, which only got better when he laid down, and Hildebrand developed vomiting. Both felt poorly for several days, which prevented them from working for over a week. Now, they were likely suffering from post-dural puncture headaches. And Beer was nursed back to health by von Esmark's wife. The first and most famous report of Beer on the technique was published in 1899. However, like many inventions, this one also seemed to have been discovered independently elsewhere. In the U.S., neurologist James Leonard Corning of New York had published an article on the injection of cocaine into the subarachnoid space. Fun fact, the subarachnoid space, a layer in the tissues covering the central nervous system, is so-called because of the arachnoid mater, a layer consisting of fine spiderweb-like fibers, as in arachnid, meaning spider. Now, Corning claimed a few months after Beer published his results with spinal anesthesia to have invented it himself, but amazingly the quarrel was resolved in favor of Beer. While Corning did experiment on a dog, successfully anesthetizing the animal's hind legs, and in September of 1885 did the same to a man in his office, freezing his legs, he never operated on anyone using this technique. But credit where credit is due, though, Corning did coin the term spinal anesthesia. The next, Beer moved on briefly to work in Griefswald in 1899, and in 1903 moved to Bonn to succeed Max Schied, another famous German surgeon. By 1907, Beer had moved again, this time to become professor of surgery at the University of Berlin, working at the first surgical clinic at the University Hospital, at the time considered one of the largest centers of surgical research in the world, and would finish his career there. It was in these early days of the 20th century that Beer came up with the technique for which he is best known, the Beer block. Now this is technically known as an intravenous regional neural block, and this was at least partially inspired by the work done by his old mentor, von Esmark. The basic idea was to use the S-mark bandage to remove blood from the limb, and then the placement of two tourniquets about 10 to 30 centimeters apart. 
or sort of a third of a foot to a foot apart. The vein was then identified and an anesthetic injected, and then the distal tourniquet, or the further away one from the trunk of the body, would be released to allow the anesthesia to flow into the limb. Now to work this technique out, he experimented on both himself and his 13-year-old son. And some of the experiments he did, at least on himself, were pretty strange. Beer worked for three months with a tourniquet on one of his arms. He studied the effects of garroting, which is basically to strangulate or cut off the blood flow entirely, on his own arm for hours at a time. He even put a tourniquet on his own neck for an entire night to evaluate the possibility of preventing the local anesthetic from reaching his brain. Now, the results were vertigo, which sort of means dizziness, headache and swelling, and redness of his eyes for several hours. Please do not try this at home. Now, Beer also did some more, shall we say, scientific research, injecting a dye called indigo carmine into the veins of an amputated limb. The dye spread uniformly into the skin, muscles, bones, and nerve tissues, which showed that theoretically an anesthetic medication would do the same. He presented this technique in 1908, at a meeting of German surgeons in Berlin. But initially, it was not as popular as he'd hoped. The issues were that it took time to apply, couldn't be topped up due to local toxicity from the anesthetic, and patients didn't like it. They would suffer pain at the location of the cuff, and the pain reappeared immediately after the tourniquet was released. Finally, and most significantly, the drugs used at the time were toxic once released into the body with the tourniquet release. It would not return to popularity until 1963 when it was reintroduced by New Zealand anesthesiologist Dr. C. McKay Holmes in The Lancet, as safer anesthetics were then available. As many listeners may already know, the beer block remains quite popular to this day. What is less known about beer was that he also was into some less mainstream areas of interest, including homeopathy and something called hyperemia. In his later career, Beer began to carry out experiments on drugs often used in homeopathy, such as sulfur, iodine, and ether, and even founded the Society for the Examination of Homeopathic Drugs. A quick note there. Surgeons had been fascinated by the idea that injecting ether under the skin prior to an operation would prevent pneumonia from developing afterwards. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. All right, let's talk about hyperemia. This is essentially excess blood in the blood vessels. As you can imagine, this was an offshoot of his work with von Eskmark, given his work trying to remove blood from limbs. But interest in using hyperemia artificially as a treatment dates back to Ambrose Paré in the 16th century. Appears argument was that hyperemia was a biological response to injury, as inflammation from disease would cause swelling and redness, i.e. hyperemia. If it could be produced in artificial ways, it could assist nature in the way of a cure. In his theory, blood in an artificially congested area possessed curative effects, including analgesic, bactericidal, absorbent, solvent, and nutritive properties. Beer used artificial hyperemia treatment in a wide variety of afflictions, including inflammatory joint disease, tuberculosis of the joints, gonorrhea, rheumatism, or any bacterial infection. Usually a tourniquet was placed approximately or close to the trunk to the infected joint so tightly that it caused obvious congestion, and would be relocated repeatedly. The extremity was bandaged as to confine the congestion to the desired area. The site of intended hyperemia turned bluish-red and became swollen and felt warm, just like inflammation. Now, if cyanosis or coldness developed, it meant that the tourniquet was too tight, which was to be avoided, cutting off arterial circulation. Acute disease processes are, quote, 
best benefited by prolonged applications, that is, for from 10 to 12 hours, and should then be removed for 1 to 2 hours and reapplied. In tuberculous affections, prolonged application is contraindicated, and 1 or 2 hours, once or twice a day suffices, end quote. Now, in fact, Beer even convinced his teacher von Esmark of this treatment by relieving heavy pain in his knee within an hour of treatment. All right, now let's cover a bit of Beer's day-to-day life at the heyday of his career in Berlin. Beer began the day early, arriving at the West Sanatorium at 5 a.m., where he would operate on his private patients from 6 to 7 a.m. Now, he was convinced that chronobiology, meaning the natural biological rhythms of the body, had an impact on surgical outcomes, hence the early hour. From there, Beer would go on to the university clinic, arriving at exactly 7.30 a.m., with a bell ringing to indicate his arrival. Most days, he took his Mercedes-Benz, but once a week would make the walk. There, Beer would begin classes at 8.30, finishing at 10 a.m., and from 10 a.m. to noon, he'd operate wearing his typical wooden clogs. He certainly sounded like a regimented fellow, but Beer also knew how to lighten up. During residence gatherings, he'd dress up like a sausage vendor and serve his students. Okay, let's go back to a more chronological history of Beer. Now we are entering 20th century Germany, which of course meant world wars. During the first war, Beer was a consulting surgeon for the German army. At his own request, he was transferred to the 18th Fleet, acting in Belgium and France. While there, Beer noticed that 80% of severe cranial trauma were caused by grenade shrapnel and suggested improvement on the leather helmets used by the armed forces. The new ones were steel and called Kaiser Wilhelm helmets, which was a great improvement. Following the war in 1919, Beer was refused a request to introduce compulsory military service, but he brought it up again in an article entitled, quote, Maintenance of Physical Training, end quote, because this could be regarded as, quote, the best education for the body in the world, end quote. This eventually led to him establishing the College for Physical Training, which was headed by Beer until 1932 when it closed. But the college reopened later in the German city of Cologne as the first academic school of sports, which grants the August Beer plaque to the best student sportsman or sportswoman of the year. Now in the 1920s, Beer became first surgeon of the German Empire, president of the German Surgical Society twice, and treated many patients, including some famous ones, such as the Emperor Wilhelm, President Friedrich Ebert, and family members of the Russian Tsar and Lenin. He was at the height of his fame, even being proposed for the Nobel Prize in Medicine 42 times between 1906 and 1936, mainly for his work in artificial hyperemia and spinal anesthesia, but was rejected, possibly due to anti-German sentiment, after World War I. And he received no nominations from 1937 to 1945, as Hitler refused to allow German scientists to receive the Nobel. Beer retired in 1932 at the age of 71, and moved with his wife to Sauen to better care for his forest. Okay, two things to unpack there. First, let's talk about his family very briefly. He married his wife, Anna Essau, on August 29, 1905, when he was 43 years old. Anna was actually his very first patient and the daughter of his good friend, Dr. Victor Essau. Together they had five children who were raised with, and I quote, Spartan discipline. Beer once operated on one of his daughters, removing her appendix prior to her taking a trip to England, stating that he did not trust the operating skills of his English colleagues. It was a different time. Now, the Sauen property, near Berlin, came into Beer's possession in 1912, which included a 20-room country house and 500 acres of woods. 
In his retirement, Beer liked to walk every morning barefoot to the city's lake to swim, regardless of the time of year, a distance of seven kilometers. No word whether that was uphill both ways. As Beer had a strong interest in ecology, he wound up planting over 750 acres of different species of trees on his property, which eventually expanded to cover 828 acres. Now, the reason he did this was to guard against soil degradation caused by monoculture, and his plant placement increased the consistency, fertility, and water held in the soil. In fact, so great was his impact on the Samhain forest that it has become a public space enjoyed to this day, but we'll get back to that. Now, during the rise of the Nazi party in Germany in the 1930s, Beer was not immune to political involvement. Like his faculty colleagues, Beer signed a form for the elections of the Reichstag in favor of Adolf Hitler, and in 1936, on his 75th birthday, Beer received the highest civilian distinction of the German Empire, the Alderschild, from Hitler. The following year, he was given the German National Prize for Arts and Science in Nuremberg, a substitute for the Nobel Prize. And this was not the end of his family's contact with the Nazi regime. In 1944, Beer's wife Anna was detained by Himmler's Gestapo due to a casual remark made to an old school friend. Such was the paranoia at the time. As the Russian army moved into Germany near the end of the war, Beer, now almost blind, and his wife were evacuated from their home and taken to a nursing home near Biskau, close to a Soviet camp. In a bit of serendipity, the nursing home was inspected by the Russian army to consider it for a military hospital. The inspector was Professor Valentina Gorniskaya, a Russian surgeon that had worked under Beer. She recognized her old teacher and arranged for him to escape by ambulance, and eventually Beer and his wife were returned to Sawin, where the commander of Soviet troops, Marshal Georgi Konstantinovich Shukau, apologies for pronunciation, announced that the forest in Sawin was Beer's personal property and remained under the protection of the Russians, and the Beers received medical care from Russian physicians. August Beer died on his property at Sawin, then a part of East Germany, shortly before his 88th birthday on March 12, 1949, from pneumonia brought on by the flu. He was buried next to his wife in the forest of Sawin, and an enormous boulder marks the grave, which was added by Soviet surgeon Alexander Vishnevsky in the early 1970s. A quick and strange side note about Vishnevsky. While on the Eastern Front in World War II, he tried new methods for treating gunshot wounds, including using leeches to remove shrapnel. Following the war, he would go on to make important contributions to cardiac surgery in Soviet Russia. The last sentence written by Beer in 1949 was, quote, The Samhain forest cannot be described. It should be seen, end quote. Now that year, the forest became public property, but Beer's son Heinrich continued to manage the project, and by 1994, administration of Samhain was handed over to the A. Beer Foundation, presided over by his grandson, also a physician. Now, while a bit eccentric, Beer was known as a conservative and cautious surgeon. He claimed that every surgical intervention invaded the homeostasis of the organism and was convinced that part of the art of surgery was simply avoiding unnecessary operations and applying alternate methods instead. Interestingly, too, given his impact, Beer did not appear to support specialization in the field of anesthesia. But every anesthesiologist and most surgeons owe a debt of gratitude to this legend of surgery. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm still working on that bonus episode, which will include some fun naval stories. But in the meantime, the next episode will be on Fistula in Aino, the surgeon Frederick Salmon, and the founding of St. Mark's Hospital. And Charles Dickens will make a brief appearance. 
Now, in the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.